This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Were you gonna kill me? Does that scare you? Not really. Why not? My life's already kind of been like a horror movie. Most of it anyway, so. Margo Mutter. I'm Beth Hugel. And we are to, to get, get here. And we are here as part of Anatomy of a Scream Podcast Network's Pod Squad Good for Her Horror Series. Uh, we're going to be covering Bit. And I am just thrilled to be here. How are you, Becca? Yeah, so excited. Um, I love a good Good for Her horror movie. As one of my favorite niche little subgenres. If you haven't heard of Good For Her Horror, because we've also, I think, discussed using this as our primer episode. Yes, for sure. So anybody who's going to be coming back to the show, this will be sort of our episode double O, double Ot. <laughs> the prequel. The two little puncture wounds oh, yeah. at the start of the journey. <laughs> so it would be good to tell you just a little bit about what is good for her horror? Because it is sort of this nebulous expansion of the revenge film, but it's it's very specific. Like it is a palette to yeah, me, absolutely. You know that deals more with the the subjugation of women, and a lot of it is um, in a sort of society that asks women quite often to be demure and quiet. Good for her horror gives you space to delight in women's wrongs. And I love to do that. <laughs> Always. Yeah. yeah, how many good for her films have you seen where it's like, oh, I hate my marriage. And it's like, good, good for you. Go and make a pact with the devil if you need to get out of there. And we all have a little catharsis. Sure is. So now that we've set kind of what good for her horror is and what it means in regards to to certain films, to set in the mood and sort of the, the subtext at play, you know, let's talk a little bit about why we wanted to do this film for that. And then we can kind of come back around and, and tell everybody who we yeah, are. Absolutely. That for me is very good at walking that line of, here are a bunch of issues that people are facing and here is space for you to delight and all the ways that you can turn around and essentially put a big middle finger up to that entire experience. And it does so with this like really camp comedy sensibility. Mm, yeah, it's it's so good at that. That pop artifice, yeah. it's delightful. When I first saw it, my inclination because of my personal taste was I wish it was a little bit more raw, mm -hmm. which is not something 
that Brad Michael Elmore, the director and writer of this film, is unfamiliar with. No, not at all. I think his, yeah, and his previous films before this one were more in that vein of something a little darker and grittier. And I know he said in interviews before that he was like, well, let's change it up. Let's try something new. It works so well. So this is a relatively lesser known film. You know, it hit at a really inconvenient time for any film, right at the cusp of the pandemic. Came out in one or two festivals in 2019, though it didn't go to any kind of extended release, which it was planned for. Uh, And it is a shame. Like, I'm sure that that would have been a limited release. But in consideration that a lot of movies, when they have intersectional casts or they have uh, progressive politics, they will get downvoted before the movie is ever out. Yeah, so difficult to combat that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think it would have been a great theater experience too. It's a a very fun movie. It would have been a a fun show. It would, and it would be a great opportunity for that representation, which this movie is. We talked around it for a second, but... Bit, uh, released in 2019-2020, is the story of a newly minted Central Oregon High graduate who goes on summer vacation to visit her brother in Los Angeles. Her first night in L.A., she's jumped and recruited into a vampire clan. And from there, most of the movie is centered around her reluctance to feed. But this plays into the fact that she is a trans lead and her coven is just this group of sapphics and asexuals. And that's my read on Roya. Yeah, that's, that's a my good read on Roya. I'm I putting like it right one. here. Yeah, no, good. I, I like it. That. I can see that. Um, but yeah, and truly just a incredible little coven of vampires. They are all so much. I love them dearly. Like they carry the film. Yeah. When we get to talk about Duke in a second, oh. which is not going to take very long because we want to talk about Duke so badly, so badly. she steals the show. So Izzy, who is played by Zoli Griggs, Roya, Friday Chamberlain, Frog by Char Diaz. Yeah, so this coven of vampires, the side characters in this movie, I think it's really unusual and especially a vampire movie that has like a a coven of vampires, although I suppose that's more witches, but it'll do for now. Um, it's very rare that those side characters, I think, can carry a separate storyline. Like, if someone came to me tomorrow and was like, here's a six-issue comic miniseries on what these three vampires are up to without Duke or Laurel, I'd be like, Sold immediately. I'm there. Oh, yeah. I would absolutely read the continuing adventures of all these characters. Most of the movie deals with Laurel's struggle to decide if she wants to feed, if she wants to be a vampire. And what I love about this film, and it's going to be different than a lot of the other films we're going to talk about, is that the subtext isn't, are they queer? Is this a queer movie? Are they trans? That's the text because they just are. And so it gets to be a movie about power. Yeah, for sure. And power structures and how people relate to power, what it does to them, how far they'll go for it. You wouldn't have expected it to come out of like a cis straight white man. Yeah. Um, And I really appreciate that he did his homework and he sticks the landing on that. For sure. Yeah. And I think when you hear him talk about this film, it's, it's very obvious that what he was trying to do was create a space where he could use sort of his privilege and his position to fill in what he perceived as 
a, a gap in the media, which obviously having trans leads is, is such a big gap. And I think even for me, more than that, it's Laurel's story is not about being trans. She gets like a very, a very natural coming of age. Like it's mm-hmm. a coming of age movie where she's also trans and also there's vampires. And I, I think that's great. Uh, though it it also has issues with, and this is not a thing that's developed in the movie, I'm just saying that it also has a lot of passing privilege with regard to that. Now, that's not something that Elmore set down. I remember him For discussing sure. that he wanted to uh, make sure that, that nothing in the casting was contingent on a certain classification of what it took for someone to quote-unquote pass. Uh, which What I find so great about that is that he has these little notes throughout his script, which you don't really get a lot of when you're doing screenplays. And he ended up like selling all of those. Yes. Which that that Rasputin note is truly a a wild one, and I was so on board with it. <laughs> and I'm gonna make this note, and then we'll talk about ourselves because we have started to really just like jump in. Um, yeah, we got carried away. Classic. So one of the reasons we're doing the show is I wanted to have these conversations with you, for <laughs> listeners who are not aware. Uh, Becca here has just gotten her Master's of Letters. Sure did. You are a fantasy literature scholar, and I haven't got to tell you congratulations thanks it was a, a journey um but yeah i just i just graduated with master of letters fantasy literature currently the only program in the world doing that so that's pretty fun so uh glasgow yeah we have a great center for fantasy there um, and a really like thriving community doing genre studies which is really sort of underrepresented even now so i obviously come from like a lit background um which is been my sort of slant into horror I came in because I got given a copy of Dracula when I was 13 and they were like you'll like this and I was like sure did I actually just went back and reread that for the first time loved it what a wonderful gothic silly thing truly my favorite thing is that um Dracula's big downfall is that Mina Harker knows the train timetable (laughs) God, yes. And I'm like, incredible. Mm. Sold. Mina. What a woman. Um, Absolutely. I also just read, uh, for the first time, I finally read Carmilla. Oh, wonderful. uh, Which is, I feel like, more in line with where we're at with with Bit tonight. Yes. You know, it comes from more of that sapphic uh, outsider kind of. Yeah, absolutely. What I was looking at with the program was to do something where we could talk about being othered in horror. I wanted to have those discussions with you. It felt like a good opportunity to kind of revel and and also discuss, you know, what is at stake in films. Stake was very good. I asked us, do we need another queer horror podcast? (laughs) The answer is always yes. Which has now brought us to this point in which we get to discuss a really fun horror comedy romp and so how do we want to present this? Do we want to give a, a little bit more of a tight play per play of the movie uh, on an overview level? Well, yeah, I think it's it's worth a, a quick little overview. Um, obviously, big spoilers for Bet. So if you haven't seen it, you should definitely go away and do that and come back because it's a wonderful film. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's very, if the Lost Boys were in 2019, like. <laughs> but also make it... You know, for women, like like for girls when they go to see this and they're in high school, like this should rock their fucking world. It should change their whole personality. And it's like, this movie is it for me. 
I think Israel also has like shades of the craft in that way. It's also got a little Heathers in there too, I think. Yeah, um, for sure. And real quick, you know, this will be something that we probably will do in show notes later, but at least I think it's worth on this part to go ahead and give some trigger warnings for the film. Obviously there is violence. Yeah. I also would say rape by coercion, yes. rape by deception. Uh, some gaslighting. Assault. References, yeah. I don't think it's quite explicit on screen, but yeah, certainly references. Drug abuse. Just a couple of things to keep in yeah. mind as we discuss this. It's not a particularly dark film, but the places where it lands its punches are really effective, uh, especially when we talk about Duke's background. Yes, um, I think when it hits that those serious beats, and it's not afraid to when it needs to, um, they do hit very well. And in a way that is quite effective, especially if that is something that you struggle with. I would also say with the gore, it's not, I wouldn't say it's meant to be gore that does to scare you. That's gore to delight in, I think. And that kind of comes back to this catharsis feeling. So to start off looking at the film as a whole, the first act is based around Laurel graduating from high school, leaving her hometown, and spending the summer with her brother Mark who is off in L.A. trying to be an actor, which this is a very L.A. movie. <laughs> you know, there are a couple of places where I thought, okay, this is a little too CW. Yeah. But that actually makes the theme that we're going to discuss here really palpable. Yes. And the theme that we're going to come into is about minority voices and access to power and relationships to power. But we start off with Laurel goes to L.A. to spend the summer with her brother. And her first night there, they're off of the show. And after having a dust-up with a guy at the show... She ends up getting picked up by Izzy. Ooh, wait, we can't do that yet because we got to talk about the ID of it all. <laughs> the ID. Here is, this is a show that's going to be built on digressions. Just digressions stacked on digressions. But, <laughs> so, Laurel, played by Nicole Mayans, is trans. It is the text of the movie. Yes. It is very obliquely referred to and, like, referenced to which is really great because you want to see that and also have stories that are allowed to be about being trans and ones that are not. But it's also infuriating when you're trying to like see that reflection. Yeah. And I think even before the idea in LA, there's um, Laurel and her best friend from high school go to the graduation party. With the egg. With the egg. If I was more of a pessimist, I would say he was a chaser, but we won't do that. Today. Not mutually exclusive. I know that. This is true. Yeah, this um, is true. So um, but yes. We do need to go back to that. <laughs> yeah. So they're at this party. Neither of them want to be there. Uh, Laurel and her best friend, Andy. Poor Andy. What what a time he has on this film. Yeah, he has a really bad time. And, and part of that is due to cuts that were made to his story. Him and Mark uh, yeah. both got cuts to their arc, which sort of... In the film, you will see later on that some of the punches just don't land like they should have. But they're at their graduation party. Yes, they are. And they are approached by a individual who is very drunk. Yes. And presenting mail. And they're giving the you're so brave speech. Yes, you're so inspiring. Which is, as a trans person, you do hear that in a patronizing way, but also is sort of like the opening gambit of an egg coming out to you and like i knew when that happened i recognized myself in this i think that that whole speech of like you're so inspiring you're so brave and it's like this person never explicitly says what it is that laurel has done that is so brave or inspiring 
you're sort of expected to pick up on what's not being said there. And I actually think that for one of the very, very rare films to carry a trans lead, I'm okay that they handled with care. Yeah. I wish they would have trusted them a little bit more because in this movie, I see a lot of things that I would love if I was, if I had seen this growing up, it would have been pivotal yes, to me. for sure. Hey, we're living through the resurgence of Jennifer's body. We can do this. That's right. As we should be. Absolutely. But I digress once again. Right. This whole show. And this individual that is coming up to Laurel and explaining how they admire her is one of those places in the film where I see what is great about having a director who's not necessarily telling their own stories right because like there's something else naturally that blooms there i don't think that he wrote that scene as this person is a not yet out to themselves trans person or a chaser i think that that part might have been there but i think they wrote (laughs) it as patronizing thing that you see a lot of trans people deal with yeah it is one i swear we're gonna get to a beat by beat but i do think that this is important because i think it's one of the places that when you look back at duke's storyline which is that you can't turn men. By the way, I'm sorry. The, the whole point of this is that you can't turn men in bed. You don't do it. it it's not the dumb thing. Uh, so this person, would Duke say, I don't know. I don't worry about it. Yeah. Which is what Duke says to Laurel when Laurel is turned and Duke lays out all these rules to Laurel. Laurel, again, not quite explicitly, just kind of goes, well, what about me? And Duke's response to that is, it never crossed my mind. And it's like, well, where is that line for Duke? Right. Andy and Laurel have a scene and it sets up that Andy is struggling already. You know, Laurel is going to go off to the big city. And that is a classic arc for a lot of queer kids is they get out of their hometown and then they flourish. Sometimes do not flourish. But for the most part, like once they get out of hostile territory, they can be more themselves. They can live more themselves, which is also Duke's storyline. Uh, later on too but Andy doesn't have that so Andy is still you know having to deal with this yes for sure but it's it's set up there and then it's put on the back burner and I think it's unfortunate that those cuts had to be made but I also think that where those cuts were made probably made the more the most sense for the story they were trying to tell it's just unfortunate that it had to happen at all. So she goes up to LA and she goes to a show with her brother Mark. But before they're ever even in the door, Duke and her coven are reintroduced, coming up to the bar, and Laurel's ID gets rejected. And we don't know if she's clocked there. You know, we do hear from Mark, uh, you know, it's previously been a situation. And I don't think it's necessarily that it's has she got her gender marker on there. It's that she is 18. But the, the great thing about that is that you can just do it as both things at the same time. Yeah. And I think as well that reads differently. For me, I thought it was the gender marker before I thought, oh, she's underage. Because I live in the UK where drinking age is 18. So I was like, she has no problem getting into a bar. And then I was like, wait, that's wrong. <laughs> you have to be 21. But Duke intervenes takes a look at her ID and passes the glamour on to the doorman uh, to get them in, which is a, a just a great illustration of how they're using her trans status organically. Yeah, it, it influences her life and what she does and how she does it, but it doesn't have to be 
she doesn't bring it up all the time and I think that's a really interesting way to do it and probably also when you are um, writing and directing a story that's not your own potentially a very smart way to do it I know Brad Michael Elmore said that uh, Nicole Maine's got a lot of input into this story and how she wanted to play that and I think that's great and I think that really shows in certain scenes especially when it's being handled in these ways that are not as explicit but um, yeah still very effective I would say it really is like it really does have a lot going on far more than you would suspect so they go through the show and she gets picked up by Izzy yeah. Uh, Izzy is Zoli Grigg. She is this beautiful black vampire. And she is just one of the most charismatic actors yeah. in this movie. Like So cool. I would let her kill me. That's so valid of you. Yeah. Heart, heartbeat. In a heartbeat. She can have mine. She directs music videos. She directs skate videos. She's great. I love her. She just doesn't give a fuck. You can't really bother yeah, Izzy. Yeah, things are happening around Izzy and she's just sort of like, okay, yeah, that's fine. She rolls with it. And so she's picked up by Izzy and they go to an after-hours party. They call it the Party Palace. So that's really what it is. All you need to know to get the vibe. Yeah, like whatever you think of when you hear Party Palace, that's it. And get <laughs> Izzy and Laurel's date up on the roof, but it's also cross-cut with Duke and... Should we talk about the in media res part? I feel like like it's weird to do it now, but so here it is a very good scene. It is a very good scene is the thing. This movie is opened with Duke yeah. and her coven coming to kill the first bride's new boyfriend, Cody. It's very much a play on Twilight. The moment Diane Hopper walks on screen. Oh, she's incredible. Oh, she's electric. Yeah. From the first shots you see, Diane Hopper walks on screen, and this is Duke for both John Wayne and for Bowie. Like, she is a shit kicking, slick rock and roll fucking goddess. Yeah, I'm obsessed with her. Like, Duke shows up and has this white leather jacket on. She has these fingerless red leather biker gloves. The black collar white, with the spikes. Yeah, a black collar with spikes on. White docks, like Doc Martens on. Everything about it. And I haven't seen Diana Hopper in a whole lot else. I want to see her in everything after this. Everything. Like, Nicole Maines does a great job carrying the lead of this film. You know, she uh, won Outstanding Performance in the U.S. Feature at the L.A. Outfest Awards. Uh, I know she's been nominated maybe for the Queerty. But Diane Hopper seals the screen every time mm -hmm. she's on. And so she comes in. They kill Cody. They tell him he's not special. And the life isn't a movie. But you get to meet the bad guys sometimes. Rips out his heart. Sets it on fire. But when the first bride asks, like, okay, are you going to kill me too? She's like, what? You yeah. screwed up. You broke the rules. Yeah, and that's okay. Like, you broke a rule and you'll be punished for it, but you don't get killed. Right. You're just going to have to learn the number one rule, which is done in this smash cut as it gets closer and closer on her bloodied mouth, which is no fucking boys. Ugh. What a way to sell me on a character instantly. Instantly. And then you get that great title card. Yes. Which is also done by Brad Michael Elmore. He does all the titles for his films. Uh, but that's the that's the setup scene with Duke. It felt a little weird to necessarily start there, 
in order to set up the rest of the story, but I think it's worth going back to because it's such a good scene. Yeah, I think I really like it sets up all you need to know about Duke, and that is she is going to steal your heart every time she's on that screen, no matter what is happening. And she is very strong about abiding to these rules. And she's very strong about that first rule. That is no boys. And I think it sets in motion a lot of what happens later in this film. So I think it is worth starting there, but also it's good to have the background of what's going on before we started discussing it, I think. I almost wanted to hold off on talking about it till we got to Duke's next kill, just because she is such a force to be reckoned with. I'm just revisiting the dialogue from that opening scene, and she goes... Oh, you poor thing. I bet you thought you were the hero of your own little movie. Finally, you've been bitten by the radioactive spider, confirming what you've always suspected, that you are, in fact, a special centre of the universe. And then she bites him and drains him. Um, And just to pull out with, but you're not special. I'm like, oh, oh, you're really going all in. She's almost too cool. No, you're correct. It's not that she is too cool. It's that she has spent all this time where she has been free practicing how to be this cool. Yes. This is not a natural thing for Duke. She has perfected this. Right. She is trained on how to be here. And you'll see it in other scenes where she makes pop culture references or she tries (laughs) to make one that doesn't land. And it's, it's very noticeable because when the first bride comes back after she has been in the hole, she makes that comment. It's like, when are you going to fucking grow up? Yeah, and it's like the difficult part for Duke is like, she's a vampire. Vampires are changed and for the most part, quite often remain stagnant in their lives because what else can you do? And I think Duke doesn't show that that often, but when she does, it's very, very clear. Yeah, it is. And it gets to the the theme of this movie is power and how minority access to power leads to greater nuance. Mm-hmm. And also it's about how abusive power structures can be recreated. Yes. Even without your explicit knowledge or intention. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not necessarily like a hurt people hurt people, but it kind of is. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that really manifests in Duke because... As we learn in her background, she's been through a lot of very traumatic things at the hands of abusive men who wanted to use her for various things. Um, it gets We get a whole flashback sequence that we'll touch on that is incredible, really. I really enjoyed that in terms of contextualising her. It's one of my favourite flashbacks in, in recent history. Yeah, I think it does such a good job contextualising Duke why she is the way that she is. Um, So you could understand her urge to keep her power and keep it centralised in a way that is inaccessible to the people she thinks have hurt her previously. And she's not wrong. No. That's, That's the biggest thing to me in the course of this movie's arc is that for the most part, they're trying to target rapists and trolls and uh, oh. abusive male figures and they're not on a mission like what what is that line we are socially historically yeah. and mythologically fucked and it's like she's i think this is why i find Duke so complicated and interesting to root for she's not she's not wrong for what she says 
what she says is fundamentally true and the people she targets are not really worth keeping around in her opinion I think about um, uh, that that other scene where the guy wakes up and she's handcuffed him to the bed uh, yeah and she has this guy and she's handcuffed him to the bed and he wakes up in a panic um, comes to the realisation that Duke has killed his friend. She is still so sexy right there. There's something wrong with me. There's blood everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I like, know. I'm sorry. It, no, you're you're correct though because Duke has like a mouth and like her mouth and chin are covered in in blood. She's just lit up a cigarette. Um, this guy's freaking out, going like shouting for his friends, shouting Jimmy, Jimmy, like where are you? All of this nonsense, and without even like keeping eye contact with this man she just goes Jimmy is dead as fuck you and it's incredible I was like oh oh my heart um, but she goes on to say that Jimmy's only crime was in her words keeping Sherry company because the guy that she has tied up is a rapist he has assaulted someone which Duke knows about and she's not going to let this man walk away from that it's a particular point of pride with her. Like, she, because mm-hmm. she is, this is the thing where I think good for her horror kind of like crops up within this story is that Duke is the victim hero. Yes. Uh, you know, we're talking about like in rape revenge stories, there is like the victim turns hero. That's who Duke's archetype is. Yeah. And so this is like seeing her in the never ending third act. You know, she is continually going and she is tracking men who are predatory men who are abusive coincidentally breaking up power structures of those same people by virtue of what she's doing she is turning the violence onto the world that has like wronged women and wronged her which is i think where you get the larger portion of what good for her horror means in regards to the overarching narrative i do still think there are some that play out with the way they change the nature of their relationship to power yes Duke specifically, I think, in her head, me about to theorise about the internal motivations of this character, because why not? Um, I think she intends to, in her own way, bring these men to justice in a system that very often does not do that. Um, At that exact same scene, she says, like, oh, you have like this cigarette to to come to terms that for once in your life it's just not going to work out yeah yeah this idea of like oh he gets off scot-free for so many things because that's just how the system works and Mm -hmm. quite often these things will slide through the cracks and you just have to deal with that in Duke's mind absolutely not she will be the once in a lifetime sort of opportunity to be like it's not happening for you. Not this time. A thing that I find interesting, that this is, I hope this doesn't lead into too much of a divergence, but we're already here at like, <laughs> we're at like 53 minutes recording and we haven't even got you past like eight scenes of this movie. Yeah, that sounds very However, <laughs> the thing that I do find interesting, if we're going to talk about this philosophy of hers and like her method and her internal motivations, is that when you typically look at stuff like slasher films or rape revenge films, a lot of the weapons and a lot of the violence is usually used as an allegory to sexual violence. Yes. So when you look at the vampire's kiss, that's also something that is very prominent over its 
hundreds of years now. Yeah. But to turn the bite that is an allegory for sexual violence back on predators as a means of reasserting yourself, I just think is so fascinating. For sure. It's, there's a lot of power there. And even when it comes to killing other vampires, bodily reaches into their chests and pulls their heart out. It's so metal. It's incredible. Like, what a way to go. But even that in its own sense is a, is a penetration of some kind. It's, it's always about that. And I think that also kind of speaks to this idea of what happens when this power is centralised in an individual who has suffered in the hands of a system. Because for all, it's not the same type of violence. Duke is still replicating violence that allegorically is the same. And I think that's so, so fascinating because sometimes that's completely valid. But there are other times, and I think that's where this movie likes to live, is in those grey spaces where you're like, hmm, where's, where's the line? Where do you look at what she's doing and think, has this gone too far? Has she crossed the line? Or is it still a worthy situation to hold on to? It's interesting too because she's not just recreating the violence that has been perpetuated against her and against all of the master's victims, but she's also creating those abusive structures in her personal relationships with the other vampires in the coven. You know, they, we'll get to the rules in a minute, but one of the rules is yeah. about not glamoring or gaslighting or controlling the actions or pushing people on a psychic level because this is what was done to her and what allowed the downfall of the life that she had built because she was a character who's been around since uh, 70s you know like she is because she you know what she is she is a character that rode out of second wave feminism right she lands in new york in the 70s she is self-possessed she is a farm girl, you can tell cause she's got a little grit to her and it never leaves, but she is someone who had to leave and had to become herself. And so if we're going to take this back kind of like to the scene structure so we could hit all those big beats, the next scene that we get that's been interspersed alongside Duke's kills is Laurel and Izzy on the roof. This scene right here, and then there's a later scene with Laurel and Izzy down the line yeah. that are just really sweet and precious. And they kind of give more of that innocent feel to Laurel that I think the producers wanted. Like, I think it's a very sincere scene, but she definitely gets played as more of a wholesome character than I think you might have gotten otherwise. Mm-hmm. They're flirting yes. and, and, you know, asking why they don't want to scoot a little closer if they're too nervous. It basically just establishes that this party palace belongs to Izzy and it belongs to Frog and Roya and Duke. I do like that it brings up the fact that Laurel is very inquisitive. Like, she won't take the deflection of a question as an answer. Yes. So she learns about Izzy, you know, directing music videos. She had gotten her hands on the camera and shot her friend skating and put it online. And her whole career just kind of blew up. She is effortlessly cool. And like things just fall into place for Izzy, you know, even down to becoming a vampire, like, cause she chose it. Yeah. And, you know, Laurel just melts. Laurel is very enamored with Izzy, who doesn't need a glamour, by the way, at all. No. Laurel is like, oh, wow, this is my first night in L.A. and it's like the best night of my life. Can I see you again? And she's like, mm. It's another example, like the idea of where it is both the vampire seduction with the worries of rejection and trans fetishization. But that's not on Izzy. That's just like, it's a neat thing to see someone have that reaction to a situation that they're familiar with. 
but have it be because of the vampire's attack. Yeah, because like Laurel even says as she's like, she's getting up to leave and she goes, it's not the first time someone's, you know, and sort of implying that that's been her experience in the past, that this has been something that she's been turned down for. Right, but it's great because it's just like, no, you're actually really cool. Let me bite you. <laughs> Let me just real Which, quick. I love when a girl's like, let me bite yeah, you. Yeah, it's great. And it's meant to be like she's going to feed on Laurel. Mm. Specifically because we find out very shortly after that like people you're attracted to taste better. But Duke interrupts. Duke is fascinated, has had this pull towards Laurel because they have very similar circumstances, yes. even though they're very different people. She knows from the moment that she sees Laurel that she has been someone who has had to go out of her way to be who she is. Yeah, I think that's definitely a strong read for Jake and what she sees in Laurel. Because she does say, she's like, uh, I like this one. She reminds me of someone I used to know. To me, that's her being like, she reminds me of me before I was Duke. And, you know, so she makes this offer and shows off her fangs. There's a hilarious shot of her just chucking Laurel off the roof into a garbage can. <laughs> it just bodily throws her. Yeah. It's like, and we're done. Off you go. And that is where I want to break to talk about this theme. Because from that point at which Laurel has been bitten, she now has access to power. Yes. Her story, which has gone from a very CW trans lead, mm -hmm. like she has this ideal relationship with her parents. Her best friend is a gay ginger. <laughs> All the ideal moments to have. Once you dig underneath the surface, that there's more to bear witness to. Yeah. So once Laurel gets that access, we immediately smash cut to this shot of her in a dumpster, mm -hmm. which is rough. Yeah. Because it's like this gruesome look in the immediate aftermath of something that is perceived as sexual yes. violence. And it's it's all pretty say. It looks very brutal. You're like, oh, you are going through it in this moment. And the bite wound itself, like the actual wound from where Izzy bit her, it's gruesome in like a bruise way. Like it looks like the yes. aftermath of violence. Uh -huh, for sure. Like I think you can like very faintly see like the puncture marks, but otherwise it's like her whole neck and onto her shoulders bruising more than anything right it's distressing you would be yeah. distressed if your friend or your sister had this. yes you'd be like what the fuck happened here yeah and that leads into the first confrontation between her and her brother mark mm -hmm. which is the first time that you see any conflict in her private life you see any conflict in her personal relationships it's immediately just strain and concern there's a knowledge there that you can tell that Mark has about her that we are not yet being shared. Yeah. It's very interesting that the first time we see that conflict is once she has been given access to power. It's opened a door for her and that's allowed her to not necessarily start conflicts, but she's not backing down from it either. She doesn't want to tell Mark what's happened, so she simply won't. Like, that is the decision she gets to make now. We learn over the course of the film that Laurel has previously had very volatile relationships with her parents. Mm -hmm. She's had suicide attempts. And it clues into her trans identity. Because if we are to set and clock the movie at 2019, right before the pandemic, she is an 18-year-old, as noted in the script. And not to pontificate about the fictional, medical, and personal private history of a teenage trans girl. Because, yeah... 
But that would mean that if she were to have a couple of rough years, as her parents mentioned in the beginning and how proud they were of her, that means she'd probably transition between like, say, 14 to 16, 15 to 18. Yes, which 14 to 16 or 14, 17, wherever we want to place that, I think you are right, it's probably roughly around there. Those are difficult years anyway. So much is going on. You're not a kid, you're not an adult, you're still trying to figure out who you are to add the layer of trying to transition at that time and then, as you say, this hellscape that is the political circumstances surrounding that, that's a lot to handle for anyone but especially when you're that age and I think, um, yeah as a as a way to frame and contextualise what she's going through that is I think saying it's a rough couple of years is downplaying it rather significantly. It's also the reason that Laurel is able to succeed in the way that she does within the film. Yeah. Because in a lot of horror narratives, you will find that there's a lot of cross-gender identification. Like people are having to cross the gap wherever that gap is for themselves. And that's something that Laurel has already done. She's already had this great arc uh, that has led her to this new version of herself and i think that that's allowed her to navigate what's going to happen a lot stronger than some characters well it's sort of like much like duke is like the third act of the rape revenge film but extended it's almost like laurel is already halfway through a final girl arc like she's done the work and she's made the changes to get to where she has to be to be the person she has to be to survive. Yes, she is the final girl of that yeah. transitioned present of Laurel is that. Yeah. Uh, so like from there, already starting, she's got that advantage in in bridging perspectives. Yeah. And so I think that that's really important as we move forward in a story about power and being able to tell when you have gone too far, especially as someone who's let their friends and family down, which is now where we're getting Laurel's backstory. So Mm -hmm. she goes home, Mark freaks out rightly that she has got uh, this wound, she sleeps for a couple of days. Yeah, the whole Yeah, and then she goes to the bathroom, it's the only moment of real body horror that's expressed. She Mm -hmm. spits out her teeth. She's vomiting blood, which is when we get Chekhov's blood crate. And, you know, you see that these versions of vampires do have these psychic dreams, whether this yes. is the master somehow trying to get in her head or just the kind of dreams that you have as you are in a metamorphosis. But once she emerges, she is a more, I feel like she's a more effective person. Yes. Yeah, I think she's so. not a better person. Like she pushes more of her family and friends away. Yeah. I think that that's relatable at least to me not to air my dirty laundry (laughs) but as someone who is transgender and queer i understand the feeling and that reaction and how that is a coping strategy much like duke creates her own to make it through what you have to well i think as well it comes back to this idea of like a lot of queer people when they leave high school when they have the ability to will up and leave their hometown their family because they need to get out that is to them hostile territory so this idea that Laurel would go and then start pushing away everyone who in her mind is still in that hostile territory makes a lot of sense to me I don't necessarily think it's always the right thing to do or even a nice thing for everyone on the other end of it but I see how that happens and I think that's very common it's an understandable thing to do it is a realistic thing to do 
it's interesting that when she begins to have this rockier relationship with Mark starting in this scene is also when he pulls out her pet name of Lolo. It's yes. almost as though you do see him slumping into this old defensive mode, but you also see him trying tactics that have previously worked with her. So after a couple of days, the coven comes and finds her, which is probably how she was able to find Mark's apartment in L.A. after being there one night and thrown in a dumpster. Like, there's some yeah. kind of tracking associated in vampires. And so the coven shows up at Mark's. He's in his underwear. And they all just walk in. That's their space now. He does not have the the charisma to tell them no. No. Certainly But he does ask all the right questions. Uh, and Laurel just starts pushing him away and, and goes with them. And that is when they begin to fall apart, Laurel gives that great line about her life has already been like a horror movie, which places her in a different position than the other members of yes. the coven. Yeah, and I think that is, like we say about Duke sort of seeing herself in Laurel, I think that is a point where they relate to each other. For Duke, everything that preceded that coven was in her mind an absolute horror show and it was like when we see that flashback that was a really she had a really really rough history so i think it makes sense that in some level whether she's conscious of it or not duke is drawn drawn to laurel because she thinks this one understands she gets it she immediately yeah. gets it this is where they bring laurel into the v squad bait club Marshall of Bay Club. It's actually called that in Brazil, I believe. Oh, incredible. And you see her making those references. She's trying to get that youth that she did not have that was taken from her. Mm -hmm. So they bring Laurel in and they tell her the rules. The rules are simple. You don't glamour other vampires. You kill what you eat. Always. And you never turn a man. Yeah. Men can't be trusted with power. They've already had it. And look what they've done. Mm -hmm. And then they pull out a right-wing troll. And they're like, this is, what's up? You gotta, you gotta put up or shut up. And and we're gonna get to the backstory, I swear. Yeah, I think it was very good to get all of these context clues. And get all of these, like, little pieces of information fed. So that when you get that reveal, you're like, oh, this whole character has snapped into clarity for me. And I understand her now. She really does carry a lot of the narrative weight within yes. the story uh, so she brings out jacob and she does also introduce it's a MacGuffin, which is a cure and if you take it before you feed then you'll be fine yeah i'll cure you it's over she kicks it away from laurel when laurel tries to use it and then she flees in the aftermath of that all of the coven is attacked by a group of vampire hunters led by mc Gaines or enoch he is uh the master's familiar but i think they're attacked by the vampire hunters because Laurel couldn't kill Jacob. The coven gets attacked. Yeah. Uh, and Laurel comes back and does put the bite onto the master's familiar, the main vampire hunter, and seals her fate as a vampire. And that's where we get Duke's backstory. Yes. We got there in the end. So, yeah, we get, at this point, we get Duke's backstory, which we sort of alluded to a little bit throughout, um, but really, for me, anyway, clarifies her character when she starts to talk about what happened to her? And like we were saying, this this mirroring of Duke and Laurel, she opens this by being like, in this world it takes a tremendous amount of guts for some people to merely exist, much less be who they truly are. And like, I think that's very applicable to 
Laurel in that situation, obviously, this idea of transitioning and it's such like a, a nebulous, difficult time is scary and takes a lot of courage. And I think I think that is part of what draws Duke to Laurel. But she explicitly says here, she's like, I had to run away from home to be who I wanted to be. Um, we find out that, like like you were saying, Duke was a farm girl. Uh, that shows in, like, that, that country grit. She's not giving mm-hmm. up on that. Uh, and she hightails it to New York. New York City in the 70s. Which she described as an absolute shithole. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's important to know, it's like, she had to run away from home because she was gay. Yes. Like, that's... I, she doesn't say it, but that is certainly the implication here. She was gay, she ran away to New York City because it's a big city, and she was more likely to be able to live as who she was there. Really, you know, common nar- narrative there. But um, it's established throughout that Jake was living on the streets, she was homeless, uh, she turns to to sex work and prostitution. She does what she has to to survive. Like We slowly see her going from yeah. the streets to her small little apartment to like filling it out and being with someone that she wants to. When we see her happy, when you see her smile, yeah. she's with another woman. Of course she is. And then it's established that she meets a man. A man. Vlad. Vlad, indeed. And she describes him as beautiful and magnetic and she's very drawn to him. And all of this underscored with her clarifying this and being oh, exact wording. I mean, I'm a full-blown fucking dyke. Yeah, so they're at some New York show in some kind of warehouse. Duke is up on this beautiful mohawk dyke. Gorgeous, uh, yeah. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> but there's one fucking stiff white asshole who doesn't like seeing women happy, and he walks over and pours a beer on her head. Yeah. which she pulls a pocket knife. <laughs> oh, she's great. And that's when Vlad enters because now yes. Vlad sees her yes. in a way that is like him. And it's that recognition because it's interesting. In Elmer's interview, he does mention that they purposely put Greg Hill in that white shirt so that he would parallel Duke later in the, the jacket. jacket. Yeah. So we see the master. So he is our continental Dracula, right? He is... Vlad, Menford, Castaneda, the master. He floats out of the crowd, very out of place. But that plays to the fact that when she is enamored by him, he is using his glamour because that's just what he does. That's who he is. He uses people because that's just how he's always done it. That is to him the way he lives his life. And he has uh, a collection of braids, one of which we saw Duke punish in that opening scene the one that turned Cody right um and all of them are under this glamour and quite literally to me it seems like they are are taken out of themselves like they're aware but not so aware that they can do anything about it right they're they're the worst kind of aware they know what's happening they know who they are and they just simply can't do anything about it so he has enthralled the three brides the first, the first bride, she has been with him the longest. Yeah. Uh, the other bride, we don't really learn much about. First bride is Siren, by the way. And then there's Duke. And so these three brides of Vlad stay with him for decades. It's everything that Vlad wants, every desire. It's very hedonistic to the point of self-destruction. And yeah. that's one of the quotes that I really love. 
And when you live that long, the days turn to hours, decades into evenings, when you can never OD, when you can never be hungover or get sick. The only thing that you can become addicted to is the lifestyle. So they were high on him. So she spent like a good 20, 30 years just in his thrall. It's kind of, it's not an allusion to like conversion therapy, but it feels Mm -hmm. very much like compulsory heterosexuality. Yeah. And not even in the sense of she's feeling tricked into it by societal expectations and more so this this representation of society, this this man who has come into the life, is forcing her to submit to that. Um, because that is what he wants and that is his perceived desire and what he wants goes yeah but they do end up catching him when he's down and the first bride once again through cooperation yes. through cooperation they can topple this person who is representative of of abuse and of abuse of power the first bride loves him but turns they take out his heart but it won't burn and so mm-hmm. she locks it away and eats a little piece of it every day the flaked charred bit of his heart slowly over time that corruption is put through there it's sublimating her own mind in the same way that she was forced to she's now choosing to do it but she doesn't realize it's happening yeah and it's like well in that sense where what is the problem there if she's accessing that power but she to her mind is inherently good that's not a problem right no but the problem is when she has access to that limitless power then what does it matter if you bend a security guard just a little bit to get your way what does it matter if you tell a lie here and there just so that people go along with what you want? It's the start. Right. What does it matter if you know that you're putting undue pressure on the people that you purport to care about if it's for their own good? Yeah, that's that's fine. That's You're keeping them safe. You're keeping them happy. You're protecting that, them. Yeah. And that is a mindset that while I think she probably started that with very noble intentions... You can see, uh, just in that back and forth, you see how quickly that starts to get out of hands. Especially when you're getting high on that power that you're consuming every day. Yes, and that's what she is. But we learn this, and it sort of sets us into a better position for Laurel. Because now she is just in the game. Yes. Her and Jake have that very sweet scene where she learns she can fly. And I was like, this is... Adorable, actually. Like, that's where you feel that emotional resonance between Duke and Laurel most intensely, I think. Like, you can see them relate to each other really hard, and you can see that chemistry there. Yeah, I agree. Laurel has pushed Duke to tell us about her backstory, which is how we get it. It's once again, Laurel does not let up. And we also get an answer to what happened to the first bride, which is where Chekhov's blood grate comes in again. She is stuck down at the bottom of the party palace, where she will be. And you see Duke once again changing the narrative initially in the very opening scene she says one year in the hole Mm -hmm. but when she talks to laurel she says as long as it takes yes and she decides when that bride has learned her lesson i think is the sort of implication thereof it was a year but i don't think that was enough i don't think you've learned how important it was so you're going back and it's like well yeah so it's it's how it's how long you can exert that power for And also Mm -hmm. why she feels the need to. Right afterwards, we get a great scene between 
Izzy and Laurel where Izzy takes her home for the night. Like Izzy just talks very clearly about it. She wanted agency. Yeah. And, you know, why wouldn't you want to be young forever and have glamour? That's why Farag took it. Yeah. And it's like, well, Izzy got that choice. Laurel, for all, she was sort of offered it. Was offered it with very much like Duke has like a, a steel fist and a, a velvet glove. You know, like there's an intention mm-hmm. there would have been consequences otherwise, you know. Well, even um, down to, to Jacob, when she first presents that to Laurel, like she knows what she's setting up. It's emotional manipulation there. Yeah. But it's because she's being corrupted by power. Yeah. The biggest thrust of like this act in the movie is just the distance that Laurel is putting between her and her brother, her and her parents, her and Andy, her best friend, just sort of collapsing her personal relationship. She's being consumed by this new life, which is a very relatable story beat for coming of age queers when you're like first moving away from home yeah i I think it's like quite literally laurel has been um taken up and become part of this community that for her parents for her brother for her friend is foreign there is no way they could understand that without having at least some familiarity with it um and in this case that is a vampire community but also I think you do see that a lot in queer stories and queer coming-of-age stories where I can't talk to you about this because how would you understand half of what I'm talking about if you've never been there? This found family angle is, you know, very much in a lot of vampire films that have, like, kind of queer sublimation in them. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, Near Dark is one where you can see these individuals more so than, like, the Lost Boys, right? Because in the Lost Boys, they're all sort of background players with the exception of like david and star and michael yeah but you know here you you really feel like izzy and roya and frog they really do feel fleshed out yeah i feel like for all we didn't get like a ton especially with roya and frog we get enough that i'm like oh you feel inhabited as a character there feels like there's always something happening if you just pan the camera across a bit, they have a full life that's happening. It's just that we're not privy to that right now. Right, which is another great beat that Duke will give them. It's like, well, you know, Roya has a cat. Frog does tattoos in her dad's yeah. shop. Izzy visits her brother. But most of this arc is spent, like, pushing the other people, the people in her life before she moved to L.A. out of the way, getting revenge on the vampire hunters who are just idiots. Yeah. Uh, and showing... The girls kind of out on the town, hunting victims, plotting kills. Roya is dope. She tags the wall for Mr. Kitty and kills a cop. Can't argue with that. Yeah, not, no, no. It's absolutely perfect. Love that for her. Um, I hope Mr. Kitty is doing well. I hope so. But they go over a couple of victims that like fill the spectrum of shitty men in LA. Mm-hmm. There is a pompous artist who <laughs> you know that everything he's saying is is hot air. Yeah. Like, you are talking nonsense, my guy. Be quiet. And that is enough for Izzy. <laughs> that's a, that's a line. That's all you need. Yeah. And then, you know, you get a great scene with Frog where she has got a great MO where she just chills out in a bed at a house party and anybody that tries to, like, make out with her or take advantage of her gets bit. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. Great. Great way to go about it. Uh, and in this interceding time, she's hanging out more with Duke getting her own new apartment she is spending time with the girls and just like hunting, but she's not taking personally yeah. and she is holding back, mm-hmm. which is going to be 
it's the one thing that I really do disagree with narratively mm-hmm. in the film. Like, I wish that she would have embraced more of this. And they talk about that in interviews. But it is the thrust of the film that we get here. So she's been holding back. And while that's happening, she's letting all of her other relationships yeah. go. To the point that she almost bites this this drunk girl on her way home. Cece. Mm-hmm. God bless her. Tiffany Milana, Cece. But she fucks it up. She's just not good at it. So Cece sees what's happening. Runs away. And Duke, who has been following Laurel, takes the kill. Yes. Um, and Duke, it's established that Duke has been following her, which Laurel is mad about, obviously. Um, but Duke makes the point of the longer you put this off, the longer you deny yourself what you have to do, the bigger the mistake will be, the bigger the consequence will be. You have to embrace it at this stage. Um, but does it in a very Duke way and opens this with him. I'm so profoundly bored by your crisis of confidence. <laughs> I feel that if there's anywhere that a character is a stand-in uh, for Elmore, it's right here. Yeah. Like, cause I, I don't think that this is where he wanted that part to go. No. Um, and so anyway, the, the relationships run dry and she finally gets a text from Mark that there has been an emergency and she needs to come home. Yeah. So she goes back to Mark's apartment. And that's where we find out that Andy has tried to kill himself. Yeah. And nobody has been able to get a hold of her. And so then the fight begins in earnest. Yes. This is it. That's like the breaking point of this has happened and you weren't here. Where were you? Right. Which is really like three scenes. Yes. Right. It's the scene where she comes back to the apartment and she's been bitten. It's the scene with the coven in his apartment. And then it's this scene that really sells their entire arc. And when she asks for help, he says no, because he's tired of this. Yeah. He is no longer defined by her. And honestly, it's a pretty shitty moment. Like, yeah. um, I get it, but it's pretty shitty of Mark, but it's a realistic thing where... He makes the complaint that every time she needed support, he was there through every bottle of pills, through every crisis, and that he was fine with her becoming whoever she wanted. It just turns out who she wanted to be was a selfish bitch. Wow. It's a great delivery. It's brutal. Like, he is dragging out the claws right here the way that only a sibling could. And the moment that comes out, when she sees that in him, when I first watched it, the thing I thought about was like, is Mark going to be one of those like predatory shitty guys? And this is as close as it gets Mm. to that, but it's more just that he, he is like so hurt. Yeah. It's like it all hits an emotional boiling point. And I think I don't have siblings, but I think it is that as a relationship that it can be very fraught Mm -hmm. and there can be moments where you, will cross someone will cross a line and then everyone will say something they regret and that feels like one of those moments where it's like i think you were being selfish and i think he probably is right to think that in this scenario but it's like okay maybe i shouldn't have said it like that that was a bit maybe not not, yeah (laughs) maybe that's not the way to react to your little sister asking for help after her friend has nearly died of suicide and she's clearly going through something incredibly yeah fucked up she doesn't want to talk about it but i think he knows and she knows that he knows that something is happening that she is not comfortable with at the very least yeah so she bite she do she bite bite. uh and it is it is the bigger mistake here but i think it's it's also it does still play to 
the soundness of Laurel's heart in that without this happening, we would not have the dissolution of the power structure. So Laurel bites Mark, immediately regrets it, realizes what's happened, puts him in a cart, takes him to the party palace, and begs for the cure from Duke. Everyone slowly gathers around, and it's one of those awkward moments because that is a bottle of Everclear with a label pilled off. There's no fucking cure. We were just going to kill yeah, you. That was it. That was your option. Um, you embrace this or you die. So you kill him or I kill him is the ultimatum that Duke yeah. gives to Laurel. Instead, we finally pay off the blood grate where Laurel harkens back to her psychic vision from her dream. She slits her own throat with her fingers, which you know, vampire yeah. fingers, and lets the blood flow into the first bride's prison yes. cell. The bride erupts and resurrects Vlad through biting her arm and, and spilling the blood. He, of course, takes her, and then as he emerges, it's a really cool shot. Like, this is probably as cool as Greg Hill looked in this <laughs> yeah, role. Yeah, bless him. He doesn't get to look cool much, but I'll give him this one shot. Which I I like. We'll yeah. talk more about that in a second. But I really like that. Let's get through the end of this real quick. So he strolls out in a suit. He was <laughs> naked. Now he's in a suit. How? Don't worry about it. It's totally fine. And there is that great smoke apparition yes. that follows behind him. Yeah. The first bride has freed Vlad and everyone is kind of recovering when she sees him. Mm-hmm. When Duke sees Vlad. And that is such a moment i don't even want to see her under a glamour yeah. because seeing her resubjugated like that would be really painful yes but vlad emerges laurel and mark have already taken off they've used this as a cover and then vlad begins to put glamour onto frog and onto roya which feels so we- this is like where more than anything i'm like no nah. <laughs> this feels wrong i don't leave this. roya alone But he makes a speech about, like, how they've condemned him. How dare you judge me once I was benevolent, once I was heroic, once I was charitable, once I was cruel, once I was cruel, and once I was decadent. I have been, and more, and yet you insist on painting me with one single brush. Now, of course, this dude is a shitty rapist abuser. Yeah, like, no, I I will paint you with this one brush, actually. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Fuck him. Fuck Vlad. What that plays into is... It's not a bioessentialist element, but there is like this gender yeah. essentialism that kind of plays off in the philosophy that takes hold with both Vlad and Duke. Duke's is more like retribution than anything. Like it's yeah. maybe the most close to a character I think gets to I like outright misandry. And that's fine. Yeah, she she has her reasons for it. And given her experiences, you're like, I mm-hmm. can't blame you in mm-hmm. the slightest for any of this, actually. I get where this has come from and how this has happened. But Vlad erupts and he kind of recasts his domain over the coven. And you get the worry that Duke is also going to be resubjected to her rapist. But instead, he does the exact same thing that she does to Cody. Rips out her heart and goes to set it on fire before Laurel comes back into the scene and is kind of partially glamoured by Vlad, is pulled forward. He gives that, uh, that patronizing line. Once again, like, that's, that's the thing that, uh, you know, is brought up in LA. People aren't as patronizing. He fucking is. Yeah. Uh, because he says, you know, I guess it is the new millennium. <sighs> and so she sparks a lighter and blows the Everclear out, creating a, a fictional fireball. Yes. 
That's sets him on fire. Once again, the movie teaches us the lesson that women coming together to jump somebody always going to be good. It's always going to be and good. And then they take Duke's heart and they put it down in the hole. And Duke falls mm-hmm. into the hole after. And they yes. once again box Vlad's heart up. But now they've decided to change the rules. Yes. Which is where I feel like the whole thing really nails it on the power structure is that they break down the boundaries. They decentralize power. They break down the barriers to power and they begin to share it. We get that that end sequence where they ultimately decide to all consume Vlad's heart. But like that, they share it. And there's that beat at first where it's just Laurel who takes it. And there's just a split second where you're like, oh, it's it's a cycle and it's happened again. Right, yeah, it's a new cycle of abuse. Yes, and then she turns and goes, who's next? And it pans out and we see all of them are there. And it is that moment of them getting to share in that power Mm -hmm. and have... And have a base and a community where everyone is on equal footing. The ending really is what made the movie completely work for me. Like it, it like stuck the landing in such a good way. And there's one more scene that's like right before this last shot. Laurel and Mark are on the roof. Yes. He is talking about how he doesn't want to be a vampire. What will happen if he is corrupted, if he becomes an asshole? And she makes the point. It's like being a dude is not an excuse to be a shitty person. Just watch yourself yeah. or else. And then he puts on those sunglasses, which is, I'm going to point this out now because I love it. It's a nod. So Mark is played by James Paxton, who is the son of Bill Paxton, who was in Near Dark. And his character, Near Dark Severin, he wore these wayfarers, these black wayfarers. Yeah. And so they went through and they made a point to put an homage to his dad there by having the blood set on his shirt like it is. And those sunglasses in the same model. And I just, it's I love great. That. I love it. Yeah. It's such a strong look to like instantly iconic for him. Yeah. But that's, that's the whole run of bit. That's the plot. Like we did it. We knocked all the pieces out. Yeah. Hopefully we've been able to cut it down. <laughs> We're about at the one hour mark on this. Yes. I think that's a good place to break as well. Cause it means we can just go straight into themes. Okay. So we'll take a quick break there and then we'll go back in and talk about all those nitty gritty parts of the themes that we've touched on so far. Okay, and we are back. And we're going to get into the themes that make this a good for her horror movie. We're going to talk a little bit about the arcs that we've seen and why we like it and some of our criticisms about it. Taking off, I love that this is a movie with a trans lead that is not a trans narrative. Like, I, I like that it can just be what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I really agree. I think that I completely understand why a lot of people want representation that is explicitly said on screen. I think there's definitely a time and a place for that, and we should have a wealth of that. But I also think that a lot of this comes down to, like, this idea that these voices are underrepresented, generally in film and literature and television etc etc and I think we have to have a wealth of stories where things can be lots of things I love that this is a vampire movie that happens to have a trans lead rather than it having to be having to try and be everything to everyone because I think that's not feasible not even desirable in in my take on it like I want to be able to have trans stories written by trans people 
that are about us. But I don't want that to be the wealth of things that deal with gender. And I also don't think that your teen vampire horror comedy is the place to get real into that. I just don't. I guess I just think that it's nice that we can have a movie where she has her place in the narrative. She has her story. It affects her character, but it's not central to the narrative at hand. And so she gets to be a part of a different story, something that has reach into other themes. And I, I really appreciate that the Broadway film work was aware of that and seemed to be very aware of that. One of my favorite little details about like the production of this film was that he decided he wanted to have a trans lead. And then he said his next stop was to go and create a reading list for himself. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. I really respect that he thought, I want to do this, but I'm not going to just like barge in here assuming I know what I'm doing. He did the homework. Yeah, I respect that a lot. And he also listened to the voices of trans people that he knew when he passed that script around. You know, he listened to Nicole Maines. Like, her character was more of that dry Daria Morgendorfer, like, kind of, like, disaffective intellectual before Nicole Maines got into that role. But Nicole Maines' energy and her performance were so much more charismatic that he kind of shifted that around. Like, the hamburger necklace that you see in the film, like, with the pink ribbon on a paperclip. They were just going to put it in a real simple packaging. And then she walked on set with that. And that's why he was like, well, shit, now it's going <laughs> to be a thing. thing. Uh, which is, and it's, it's still the same conversation starter. Yeah. That really plays to kind of her youth and her optimism. But it's, it's a part of Nicole Maine, like what she brought to that character. So I feel like they did a really good job of that. And I also think um, in terms of like this, this idea of representation, there is something very freeing and I don't want to say nice that's such like a a nothing word but there's something very comforting about getting to see yourself in all genres that uh, media has to offer so yeah like sure you can have your 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 trans story where transitioning is a big part of that but also why shouldn't you get to have like a coming of age teen vampire movie why shouldn't you get to have the romance movies and the the comedies and the horror movies and the fantasy and the sci-fi like there's space in every genre for those stories it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be centralized and located to one type of story because not everyone's going to enjoy the same type of story regardless of identity that's not how it works ever it's never been how it works You know, I think one thing that this movie does really well is that it proves that you don't always have to write strictly to our own experiences because that's also never how it works. And especially getting these movies made, like I would love more movies that are trans led with trans creators, but particularly working within these systems, I think it's also something to examine when it comes to the dearth of diversity. Yeah, and it's like, I think it is worth, obviously you should always be trying to get own voices in the door and that is wonderful and a worthwhile approach to these types of films but i also think like you say if everyone wrote to their same experiences well we wouldn't have fantasy and sci-fi and mm-hmm. horror movies for a start anyway there's a whole bunch of things that just like sorry i didn't go dragon riding in some fictional country you know i can't write that experience but in terms of these conversations around representation i think a lot of people are asking is that 
you're doing the homework and that you're willing to learn and listen from people who are sort of in the group that you're writing about uh, have had these experiences and it's, it's such a it's, it's such, such a, a low, low bar. bar the bar is on the floor the bar is in the basement yeah like and yet some people will burrow under it and it's like they will and on. and just to make sure <laughs> listeners the reason this is cogent to the discussion of themes is that the main theme of this movie is minority voices being allowed access to power to bring them more nuance so that we can have stories that are about you know just a trans lead in a teen vampire comedy and we can have stories about ourselves and our experiences that are about being trans across the board but like that's that's where that theme kind of intersects here i really like the way that this is a movie about power it's an opportunity to make a movie that's not about her trauma that she is particularly set up to navigate. Because the thing is, with Duke's argument, Duke's argument is he can never turn a man because a man will take advantage of the power. But then you look at the characters like that egg in that first scene. Andy, Mark, you know, like looking at the, the male identified figures within the movie who actually have dialogue and have relationships. I think it's easy to see when the rigidity of Duke's stance falls apart. I think as the folks over at Progressively Horrified, which you should also check out, wonderful content, uh, points out, where where do non-binary people fall in Duke's stance? Is that something that she has considered? Mm -hmm. Is it something that perhaps she's never come up against and therefore has just never factored in? But but where would that line come for her? Are they considered to be someone who cannot be trusted with power? Yeah, it makes it a little thorny, and I was like, that's interesting. But I'm always like, hmm, curious. I do wonder if that had been something that had come up for Duke. Would she, where, where would she draw that line? But I do think that's a sign that she has a conflict that, that is more than just the philosophical conflict. Because that the thing is that she has a very strong case, but she also is using that argument to protect herself, to establish this environment that is conducive for her and safe for her as she recovers. And she's using the argument in order to, to smooth that all together. It's what makes it. It's the ribbon on there. And I find it interesting, again, that as Laurel gets this power, her character becomes more nuanced. That's when we dig the fact that she is pushing people away and she is not this perfect kind of CW archetype that she begins the film as. Uh, she starts in a very suburban kid kind of thing. But as she gets access to power, as the bite takes in, as she becomes a part of the V-Squad, you see her becoming more flawed. You see her making mistakes. You see her becoming more relatable, though. Yeah, I think that um, when the power comes into play there, there is, it is when we start to see that shift away from, like you say, those perfect archetypes and Laurel is allowed to occupy those spaces, those flaws that, um, and perhaps in a sort of, a movie that was taking less of a swing would have been glossed over in favour of, Again, I'm kind of intersecting this here with the power that Laurel is given allows her to be flawed because on the sort of production side of it, Brad Michael Elmore is aware that this isn't going to be perfect representation because it shouldn't be because that isn't how human beings work. 
yeah, like if your character's perfect, they're boring. That's kind of the issue. Um, and also just not realistic. No one is going to be like the perfect minority, right? That's what people are always expecting and what they want. But it's much more interesting and much more human to be like, well, no, it's just that these flaws aren't necessarily tangled up in this part of her identity. They're tangled up in this question of what happens when you centralise power, when you are put in a situation that asks you to, that sort of demands you take more than you give, if that makes sense. The thing that I find really interesting in that is they didn't, the producers of this film, there's a great interview with Brad Michael Elmore that's on Progressively Horrified, and they talked to him for like an hour and a half, and he relates the fact that like the producers were not entirely confident that people would like Laurel if they gave her the full breadth of the storyline they were going to. They were concerned that she would be unlikable and that it would be a problem. And of course, I think that he makes a, a strong argument that with a main character, you don't identify with them because they're doing the right thing. Many times, it's it's the opposite. Yeah, you look over like, oh, oh yeah, I've been there, I've done that, I've made that exact mistake. Maybe not with those stakes, but when you strip it down, yeah. Like, I look at Laura and I'm like, you know what? There's been times where stuff's been going on and I haven't wanted to... Like, I haven't wanted to tell people, so I've pushed everyone away. And I look at Laurel do exactly that, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that'll happen. And that makes her more relatable. And I, like that, like we were talking about with the, the couple of vampires, the, it makes her feel more lived in. Like, there's a life and there's a history here that an audience will pick up on um, and connect more with, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also calls to Duke as well, because as soon as we get her backstory, her backstory is this access to power. So like once she learns her own power and she's taken over by Vlad, you know, she is in this horror show for so long and separating from him, taking that action to remove him from the equation Mm -hmm. uh, and then subsuming his power. You know, it's what lets her create this new life for herself. That is everything she dreamed of and more. But of course, you know, once she does that, she is taking the same power that abused her. Uh, and because of that, I feel like she is recreating like unhealthy coping mechanisms for it, which which what lets Vlad into her head, if not his like literal thoughts, then the kind of thoughts that he has are now in her head. And those same notions this idea of uh exerting power and influence over other people and it's like it's like that that saying that everyone will trot out right the whole power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely right uh and sort of positioning herself as leader and as the only one who has the access to Vlad's power Duke is opening herself up to that absolute corruption. Yeah, and even down to the environment yeah, she's in. Yeah, for sure. Like, they build the the party palace right there, and that is just recreating, if, you know, under her own terms, the sort of life that she was living before, except that she's in control of it now. Yes. You party, you drink, you 
kill. You get addicted to the lifestyle. You get addicted to the lifestyle. Absolutely. Isn't it always the way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you, would you have done it? As a became a vampire or taken the heart? Would you have eaten Jacob? Ooh. Ooh. I think in Laurel's possession, I understand the fear. Uh, especially, like, if it had been the case of being in Izzy's possession, for that had been laid out on the table and offered, hmm. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe I would have taken that. Maybe that would have been an option. Um, but I'd have thought about it more. In Laurel's possession, I think I would have. Because I agree with Duke and that there comes a point, uh, a crunch point where you're like, this is, in that moment, this is who I am now. I, I reject this and run from it or I choose it and lean in. To me, that is the moment of like choosing the control. Mm-hmm. I like to feel in charge of what's going on. Yeah, my life. If I I feel like if I run from it, I'd have been like I'm now out of control because I'm running from something. Yes, because you would be running from that forever. Yeah, that's it. I think I would as well. You know, one thing I love about being trans is I I've learned to pull myself out of the hat really well, and that feels like a pull yourself out of the hat moment. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, that's a that's a making moment. I think. So if you're still here with us as we're talking about this, I think now it's kind of a good time to bring it back to the good for her horror of it all. You know, I think there are two currents to that. So there's the one that is, like they say on that beautiful, we haven't even talked about this, that beautiful Tula Lote poster. So if you've looked up or Googled anything about Bit, uh, it's this beautiful poster, Tula Latte, pen name for Lisa Wood, Thought Bubble Festival. It's done in this like real golden age of advertising, Bob Peaks, like those type of movie posters where you have yeah. uh, the silhouettes of the characters penciled in and it's just, it's such vibes. Sunset vibes. Oh, it's it is. Good. It's a good poster. <laughs> the tagline says, let men be the ones who are afraid to jog at night. Mm-hmm. But you have that, which is, you know, Duke in L.A. setting up her coven and stalking and killing the predatory men of the night, the the abusers and harassers and trolls. And then you also have Laurel kind of Mm -hmm. bucking the authoritarian structure that is laid out by both Vlad and Duke. They create this environment that she is welcomed into, or at least, you know, nominally welcomed into when Vlad comes back into that scene. But she rejects both of those philosophies in order to create a a more decentralized power base. And, you know, I feel like that's pretty good for her. Like, she says, fuck that. I don't want my brother to die. I dream of a world where everyone is a vampire. Uh, I think that Laurel's turn and idea of power being shared between everyone equally can't come without Duke first instating this rule against boys. I think there has to be, because for Duke there's a lot of male domination in her past and that, she swings hard the other way. I, again, understandably, I don't think we can 
this is why I think Jake is so interesting. I don't think you can actively look at her past and think, I don't understand how you've ended up here. I totally understand how she's ended up there and why she's swung so hard. Oh, absolutely. Duke yeah, was right. Duke was, right. Duke was yeah. just corrupted. <laughs> That's us. We're on record saying it. We support women's wrongs, but this one was right. <laughs> exactly. We support women's rights and women's wrongs. It's just, she is right here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think she has to have that hard push and that hard line because that allows... It allows Laurel to have that examination of her philosophy. Yeah. Like, without Duke having that, then Laurel, who is already in a position that Duke cannot, even if they relate on a level, they can't relate on that point of the level. Yes. But she still maintains who she is when she comes out, whereas Laurel has had had to cross the gap. And I think that position, being able to... Uh, being able to have that experience just lets her have a different footing in which to examine Duke's philosophy. Yeah. It's very interesting to me that Duke's hardline swing opens the door for Laurel to have access to the power. Mm-hmm. Without Duke taking that hard stance and that hard swing, maybe there's a world in which Laurel never gets that leg up and never gets access to that power at all. I think that is a very, very possible I think that's very yeah, likely. I think it's a very likely scenario. Uh, yeah, for uh, for a lot of trans women, you know, there is a very high likelihood that getting bitten for Laurel was the biggest leg up she could have had. Uh, and now, given it depends on like how you look at becoming a member of the undead. Uh, but overall, I think that that has really opened up that space, and it wouldn't have happened without Duke first starting that argument. Without yeah. her, then they couldn't have made any adjustments to For it. For sure, and I think it's so interesting to see how those how those power structure structures intersect and inform one another. Um, because just as Laurel's chance at a more even playing field wouldn't have happened without Duke's hardline stance, Duke's stance wouldn't have happened without Vlad's obsession and domination. And all of these mm-hmm. kind of start to form a very real microcosm for how power operates and that it will always be inextricably linked with what came before. I love that. That is exactly, yeah, that's 100% how I feel about the way that they have set up the difference. Because there's like Vlad's era and then there's Duke's era and now there's Laurel's era. No, Laurel's era needs like an asterisk because it's not supposed to be like hers, but that's what we're going to see going into the post-narrative structure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we can... We can do... I think we can probably start winding it up. I think we'll touch probably on a little bit more about performances. I want to sing Diana Hopper's praises some more. Yeah, we opened up for questions. We got one really interesting one that I wanted to tap in with uh let me just grab it here so we have a question from Shree Hendry she says hi all Shree here and she says if you had to bestow the title of deserve better on any of the characters okay who would you choose and why all right so I feel like the one that I like just naturally lean towards is Andy right I also lean towards Andy for a couple of reasons. One, his narrative got cut. Yeah. So I feel like there's a disservice there. The second is, as someone who, 
as a queer person also lived in my hometown for a good length of time you know there is a lot of depression and anxiety that comes in feeling that sort of isolation from your support circles and especially when you see people who were sort of sharing that experience with leave and in Andy's case leave you behind that's difficult Right. Watching someone let go of you or to say you're not important in those regards, even though we can say, yes, Laurel had quite a bit happen. There's a lot going I on. I feel like by the time you look at the length of the movie and, and like it, how long the narrative takes to unfold, the reason that you didn't get back isn't because you didn't have time. You didn't know how to process it, right? You didn't know how to have that relationship anymore because you were a different person. Yeah. Uh, so I think Andy is the one that deserved better the yeah. most. You know, he lost his support system. He lost his narrative. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's such a strong case there for Andy deserving better. That is a rough hand to be dealt. Mm-hmm. Um, and a rough hand to deal with without the support that he very clearly was leaning on throughout high school. They seemed to lean on each other quite a bit. And for Laurel to leave and for that to happen, I think that must have been difficult. I think I... My other answer I would be inclined to make a case for is Siren, the first bride. Mmm, I like that. Okay. Just because I feel like... So, Vlad picked her up, I think, for Duke said, in the 14th century. If we place their sort of revolt against him fairly close to where this movie picks up, probably a couple of decades, give or take. But that's a long, long time to be under someone's thrall. I think it is. a lot there's barely even a chance there for her to be her own person and for her to then immediately make a mistake in, in this new regime that Jeff has instated and then be relegated to the home where arguably you would lose yourself all over again because who you would become in there. Yeah, it's amazing because she is a really strong force of personality. Yeah. Like from the moment you see her in that first scene, you know exactly the kind of bra that you are dealing with, right? Like, she yeah. is very big on her feelings, but she's also, like, really up on things. So it kind of tells me, too, that in the period, however many hundreds of years that she has been with Vlad, even though you're not in control of yourself, you are still absorbing. Yeah. You are still learning. You are still having that kind of faculty. Which I think, honestly, like they say, you know, she was the strongest of us. She has been around for hundreds of years. She has learned all this shit. She has been a vampire that much longer, which is the kind of thing that they give the impression Mm -hmm. is what creates this grander power set. Because they say they don't know how long the master has been alive, but hundreds Mm -hmm. of years. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I think those are my my big contenders for that. Okay. So we actually, we got one more question. It was on Twitter. Uh, so this is from Myra at The Nicest Bird. Uh, she asks, do you think Bit would have worked better if she embraced violence as necessary for survival of oppressed Ooh. people? Hmm. I don't, I think better is a, a thorny word there. I don't know. I like, I like the story Bit tells. I'll say that. But uh, in an in-universe like character perspective, I think my answer to whether I would have killed Jacob, I think, kind of says that in that for in this situation for Laurel, that offers control, I think, in a way that otherwise is denied. So I think 
potentially she would have had an easier time of it. But then I don't know if the story would have been the same. And I think that's when she would have risked going the same way Duke went. Mm-hmm. I think better with a, like a value judgment on it is where I would get tripped mm. up at. It's a bit more entertaining than watching her. You know, like Duke says, I am profoundly bored by your crisis of conscience. Yeah. Get your teeth in there, girl. Yeah, like lean into it. Thank you, everybody who did write in. We've also still got a couple of questions that have come in for our next episode with Valentine Smith, writer, artist, all around amazing creator, going to be here to discuss Hellraiser. We're very excited. You can send your questions to outtogetyoupodcast at gmail.com. We will do some show announcements, I guess, in the next episode. Once we can confirm a few more things that we're really excited about coming down the pipe. Yeah, I have had a lot of fun doing this. This is thank you, you all, for your patience on this whole thing. We have been talking for quite a long time. And it's probably much more rambly than I imagined. But sometimes you just got to sink your teeth in. Get your teeth stuck in. Uh, Is there anything else that you want to talk about? as we close the book on bits i want to see diana hopper in everything ever i would like wardrobe to send me all of jokes outfits and i would love to see more trans leads and genre films i think they're great and i'm having a great time with them so those are my big requests for the universe at large you heard it universe at large please get on it Thank you all for sticking around with us as we launch into the first season pretty soon. We are so thrilled to have been here on Good For Her Horror, part of the Anatomy of a Screen podcast networks. You can follow them at at A-O-A-S underscore X-X on Twitter. They also have the site anatomyofascream.com. Uh, shout out to Joe and Valeska and everybody at Anatomy of the Screen for having us here. You can also check out Grimm, which is the semi-academic, fully inclusive, 100% wicked horror journal at This Is Grimm Mag. If you're so inclined, you can check out a little piece I wrote for them on Crimson Peak, which is on their site. Love it. What a film. Uh, Grim does some really great work. I have been really honored to work with them before and really glad that they featured us here on Anatomy of a Scream. It's been great. I'm thrilled about it. Music for this episode is by Friend of the Pod, Nathan Blevins. We will see you next time. Ideal. squad.